Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Hello. Merry Almost Christmas. Merry Christmas. Almost Merry Christmas. We're still a few days away. I'm an Anglican, so we're not really in Christmas yet. Merry Advent, I can say. No, you literally can't say Merry Advent because I've learned it's a very dark and <laughs> solemn time. <laughs> well, there is that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Somber Advent, Advent to you. Guys, it's not fun working here during this time. <laughs> it only gets worse during Lent, though, so nothing to look forward to. Yeah, that's the problem with work, working with a liturgical snob like myself, so there you go. If only it was just you, but it oh, seems to infect much of the building. You're right. Okay, so who is joining us today? Joining us today is Bruce Weidick, professor of economics and international studies at the University of San Francisco. He's also a research affiliate with the Kellogg Institute of International Studies at Notre Dame. He's published in academic circles and in leading uh, economic journals and in Christianity Today on the worldwide impact of Compassion International's child sponsorship program. He's the author also, most pertinent today, of CT's uh, December cover story, Blessed Are the Handouts, Why Some Christian poverty experts believe it is better to give cash than goats, food, or clothing. Welcome, Bruce. Glad to have you. It's great to be with you, Mark, and great to be with you, Morgan. Thanks. I'm always happy when we can have three Californians on this podcast. There you go. At the same time. (laughs) That could get a little crazy. Well, I honestly, like, it's weird. I do just get excited when I see that the people that I'm writing to and working with as authors are from California. And especially from the Bay Area. They get the California vibe. Yeah. yeah. Are you lifelong Californian? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And I just want to report that uh, there's not a cloud in the sky right now. And it's, uh, it's, it's you know, in the, in the high 50s. Well, I, I think we should be clear that you are in the Bay Area. We're not where all the fires are in SoCal. That's true. That's true. We're very concerned about our neighbors down south, though. It's true. I, w- I told someone the other day, I was like, listen, NorCal is always going to be better than SoCal. But... Seen those pictures of... <laughs> Even you felt compassion, huh? Yeah, I saw the pictures of 101. Well, they call it down there, the 101. In Bay Area, in the Bay Area, we call it 101. But when when you could see all the flames coming from that, that was like pretty traumatic. Yeah, the sad. flames are quite dramatic, it seems to me, yeah. Yeah, well, we had our fires up, up here about a month ago, and so so we, we got our oh, share. Oh, that's right, up at Napa, sure. that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's get into our discussion today. In Christianity Today's December cover story, our guest today recounts the gift his family gave to his father. It was a goat. The goat was never fated to live in the Wydeck backyard, however. Instead, the goat would go to a farmer overseas. Listeners will likely be familiar with this concept, popularized by World Vision, Heifer International, and Compassion International, that allows people to purchase livestock for people in need. Supporting these charities by buying animals became a tradition for Bruce's family. But as he notes, this lived alongside another tradition. While his parents purchased a farm animal for the poor in a family member's name, they would also give to that same family member a cash gift to spend as they pleased. It raised a question for Bruce. Why do we trust each other with cash gifts, but not the poor? 
Bruce's article explores new research that suggests that giving cash to the poor is the most efficient way to help them. Today on Quick to Listen, we'll be talking about that idea and in what circumstances it helps and in what circumstances it doesn't. So as everyone knows, this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And I think it's just notable to say that if you'd like to read this really great cover story that we have in its entirety, you are going to have to become a subscriber to our publication. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. We have a number of really awesome cover stories. This is another very provocative and interesting one. And again, if you'd like to read it, please subscribe to our publication. We appreciate everyone who has. All right, Mark, as you know, we often give our visceral reactions to the thing, the topic of conversation that we will be discussing today. And in this case, it's a piece with an interesting thesis about how we do charity well. When I first heard this was going to be the cover story and what the thesis was, all that's managed by our very capable managing editor, Andy Olson. So I tend to come in later in the conversations now. But when I heard about the, the article and the thesis, I said, what is Weidick up to now? This is shocking to me. Uh, I knew it would be well-researched and well-argued. Uh, but I'll have to admit, I was skeptical because I first became aware of my responsibility as a Christian to give aid internationally to less fortunate people overseas. And I was raised at, during that era. Everybody was moving away from cash, is what my memory is, because cash was being misused. It was going into the hands of uh, corrupt government officials. You couldn't trust how it was going to actually be used when it actually ended up in people's hands. So people were really into all sorts of ways of helping. But cash was verboten. So they say in German. So to hear uh, that we were going to have an article with that thesis, it piqued my curiosity. So for me, a couple of years ago in the New York Times, I don't remember how long it was ago, I read an article that they published about giving cash out in Uganda. And I don't know why I remembered that. But when I saw that we were going to cover this, I was excited to read it because I hadn't really heard anything since I had read about that particular report, which, if I recall correctly, was positive and in favor of it. I also was kind of curious because we have previously published some pieces about when you encounter people who are homeless and whether or not you should give them cash when you see them and when they are asking for money. And that's probably, I mean, CT's pieces on that where we've talked to people who work with people who are homeless, at least in America, have been of interest to me and kind of helped shape my own philosophy. And so I was curious whether this was going to validate and affirm some of those arguments, many of which were against giving cash in those particular situations, or whether it was going to um, contradict them. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, Bruce, we're excited that you're here today and here to talk about cash. So where did this idea first gain traction? I think it's... It, uh, it it first gained traction a, a, a while ago, but didn't really catch on because I think we I think we had a lot of stereotypes about what happens when you give the poor cash, and it wasn't until we were able that technology allowed donors to essentially put cash directly in the hands of the poor rather than funnel it through corrupt government officials, as you as you said, that the idea really began to catch on. And so and that really only began to happen with the advent of the cell phone and its adoption in places like sub-Saharan Africa and through the web. And so with that new technology, cash was able to be transferred pretty much directly from donors into the hands of the poor, which is something that we just hadn't been able to do before. Can you explain to me what cell phones have to do with cash, especially when I think of cell phones and money, I think of digital ways of getting yeah. money. Yeah. So so um, interestingly, um, some people 
uh, aren't aware of this, but in East Africa, they have, in, in a way, a more sophisticated way of making payments than we do here in, in the U.S. and even in Europe. It's a system called M-Pesa, which allows East Africans to, um, to have a savings account on their cell phone and, and for people to transfer money between themselves on their cell phones and as well as receive deposits on their cell phones. So, so like if, if, you're, if you're a Kenyan and you, you want to go buy uh, a candy bar down at the store, you walk down to the store and you zap some Kenyan shillings into the store, store on our cell phones and then take the candy bar. There's no cash that's exchanged, or at least there's no cash that needs to be exchanged. And so most people buy and sell things just using their, using their cell phones. Um, it's like, like sort of Google wallet, except much, much more um, use, use much more widely than that. And so you have this technology and then you have the web and you have making people making donations through PayPal or their credit cards and so forth. And so what you're able to do with, with say, give directly, for example, is go on the website and say, you know, I have $100 that I'd like to give directly to a poor person in sub-Saharan Africa, in East Africa. And you use your PayPal account or your credit card to make that donation on Give Directly's website. And then about 90, 93%, 94% of it goes directly into the cell phone-based savings account of, of a Kenyan. So that's a new technology that, that has allowed us to both implement a, a direct cash transfer and, um, and also evaluate it through a randomized control trial. So why, not a, why doesn't 100% go into that account? Well, they have to qualify people. Um, they want to make sure that that it's the that's truly the poorest of the poor that are receiving the cash transfers, and you, you need some labor to do that. And so they hire Kenyans on the ground to qualify people, um, basically making sure that that they're poor enough to receive these transfers. And so that requires some obviously some resources, but even that is creating some jobs for for local local Kenyans. So it's a very very low rate of overhead though. I am generally enthusiastic about the article and about this idea, but my job is to ask the harder questions here. So <laughs> one of the hard questions, how, 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 what gives us any reason to trust these people who are vetting who are the poorest of the poor? Uh, well, I, I think it, you know, with, with any nonprofit um, or, or church or anybody, you have, you have to trust somebody. And, um, and there's, there's a pretty strong accountability system that's, that's built in to give directly where people, these, these people that are vetting people are monitored themselves. They even do some checks using Google Earth um, because one of the most important qualifications to get one of these, one of these direct cash transfers is that you need to have a thatched roof um, because poor people all have thatched roofs in East, East Africa and nobody that's rich has a, has a thatched roof. And that's something you can check from a satellite. And so they actually do a lot of their checking and verifying through Google Earth, looking at the tops of these people's roofs. And they can actually see transformation happening as people get a little bit wealthier through these cash transfers. And they'll change their thatched roof to a tin roof or a wood roof or something like that. And, and it's, it's a neat way for them to actually monitor the progress of the recipients of the transfers as well. Bruce, I know that we've been providing lots of helpful contextual clues as to what Give Directly is and does, but can you give the two to three sentence description of their mission? Yeah. So, so what they... Um, First of all, they, they were started by um, by a friend of mine, Paul Niehaus, who's, a, who's an economics professor at UC San Diego, with some of his graduate school buddies from MIT and Harvard. <laughs> they kind of started with this pretty audacious paradigm, which is, you know, poor people are poor because they don't have money 
And so if we provide poor people money, then they will be less poor. I mean, it sounds, it's, it sounds crazy and far too simplistic, but that's what they, that's what they start with. And they, and so the idea is that, that the burden of proof needs to be on other organizations that are giving in-kind gifts to show that they can do better than, than we can do in alleviating poverty by giving people cash. And the other burden, of, but the burden of proof that was on them was to show that people don't misuse the cash that they get. And at least one very, very good study seems to have, seems to have demonstrated that. Is there a learning curve there? Let me just give a personal example. I remember when, uh, obviously, when you're when you're younger in life and you're barely making it, you're just str- struggling to pay your bills and get by. And then, uh, either through inheritance or a significant promotion, uh, you know, I'd get a raise. And I remember from my youth, uh, I wouldn't necessarily use that money as wisely as I could have. But it was only after making a, a mistake or two that I thought, okay. I can't keep doing this. This is stupid. Uh, do we see that type of learning curve? Among the recipients? Yeah, I'm the, the poor recipients. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about the poor, especially about the overseas poor, is that they, they tend to use their money more wisely than we do because they can ill afford to make mistakes with it, which, which is important. It's important for people to realize that if you're living right at subsistence and you squander part of part of your income, then there are going to be some some pretty detrimental effects, right? If, if, if you do that, whereas if a teenager in the United States squanders part of their income, well, they're still going to be fed and housed and, you know, have all the medical care they need, right? So, so the poor are actually very careful with their, with their money. And this shows in studies that have, that have been done on what they act, how they actually spend the cash transfers. So how do they tend to spend the cash? Well, first of all, people have to realize that, that the people receiving these cash transfers don't get to eat all they would like to eat. In the United States, when we eat, we essentially are able to consume what we want to consume. Whereas like, whereas people that are many, many of the poor in sub-Saharan Africa, not everybody in sub-Saharan Africa is is poor, obviously, but the, the poorest of the poor will often have only one meal a day or two meals a day. And so when you, when they get a cash transfer, a lot of that goes into just buying food. Another big chunk of it goes into investing in productive enterprises. So these could be micro enterprises, but especially for rural East Africans, a lot of the money goes into increasing the size of herds. You know, we're thinking like increasing the size of herds, like why would you want to do that? Well, herds are a measure of wealth in East Africa. Um, They're a measure of prestige. They're their health insurance. They're their life insurance. They earn income from the size of their herds. And so as a development economist, the thing that I would look for in terms of like for for a rural East African, the thing that I would want to see the most is an increase in herd size because because in their culture, in their context, that for them is is their route to escaping poverty. So they invest there. They also there are also significant increases in in investment in children's schooling. Interestingly, there is um, consumption of what what economists call temptation goods, so alcohol, cigarettes, you know, things like that, do not increase with the with the transfers. Um, even as a percentage, they don't they don't increase. And and this is consistent with some meta studies that have been done at the World Bank about whether consumption or or utilization of temptation goods actually increases when people receive cash transfers. And in this meta study done by a colleague of mine, David Evans, um, 19 different countries, they, they found that it virtually never increases in, in among, among the global poor when they receive a cash transfer. And this, this defies a stereotype that we have of people, of people misusing money. There's just absolutely no evidence that 
people squander these cash transfers on alcohol or cigarettes. And, you know, this is not in one country. This is in many, many countries. And, and they don't, it doesn't seem to discourage work either. Let me push back on that just a bit. I mean, in the United States, it's, there's a rough figure that at any given point, 10% of, the, of any given community is struggling with either alcohol addiction or drug addiction or some, some behavior that just makes it impossible, nearly impossible for them to succeed in life as we understand that. There will still be some people, uh, however small the minority, that will end up misusing those funds. And I assume that the accountability system in place will address that. There will be some people that um, that misuse the funds, but then because the average is zero, that means there are other people that are consuming less of those goods. So, so whatever whatever increase there is within the population is compensated for by a decrease. And then there is no account. This is this is an important point. There is zero accountability for how people use the money, which is um, something that could shock people. But that's part of the beauty of it is that with these cash transfers, there's there's nobody telling them how they they should use this money. It's left to the poor to decide best for themselves how to use it. And so so one of the things that's liberating in a sense about about the system is that people are accountable to themselves for how they use the money. They're not um, nobody's holding their hand telling them that they shouldn't do this or should should do this. And that way it's fairly libertarian you know, in, in, in letting people make their own decisions. That turns off other people, but, but at least that there's very, very clear evidence that people, the overseas poor, that they do not um, misuse these cash transfers on alcohol and cigarettes and things like that. Okay, that's, that's a really fascinating finding. That's just amazing. What about the uh, classic issue of, that some people have been concerned about is that when you give gifts or cash to the poor, you are essentially undermining their uh, self-esteem. It's paternalism or it's demeaning and all those things. So let's address that as well as the work issue, because I mean, an, another first, just a, an, another uh, critique of this approach is that if you give people cash transfers, that it undermines their willingness to work. So there's sort of two different populations that we need to focus on, both with the dignity issue um, and the paternalism issue, and as well as the work issue. And one is the U.S. poor, um, or poor in, in, in developed countries, industrialized countries, and then the poor overseas. So what we find with the poor in, in the U.S., like the experience with welfare programs, has been that if you permanently put somebody on a welfare program or the dole or however you want to phrase it, that it does seem to reduce their incentive to work. I mean, there's pretty good, there's pretty good evidence of that. There's a, a Princeton economist, David Price, who did this study with his co-author, Jay Sung, on um, this experiment they did in both Seattle and Denver. It's called the the Seattle-Denver Income Maintenance Experiment. So they gave thousands of randomly selected families a guaranteed income of like $26,000 for about five years. And what they found is that after receiving the transfers, the work hours dropped by 12% and they earned less. So they had lower earned income. Um, and even like, uh, even like a decade after, after they received those transfers, they still found somewhat lower levels of work. We don't find that at all in the developing world. And it could be because the transfers are temporary, not permanent. And also they tend to be smaller, right? They're not $26,000 a year. Probably if you if you gave that amount of money to to a large number of people in sub-Saharan Africa and you guaranteed it to them for life, it might very well reduce, it probably would reduce 
uh, work effort. But with the size of the transfers that we see, it just it doesn't seem to do that. And that could be because they're temporary and, again, because they're smaller. Now, in terms of paternalism, yeah, you could certainly make that argument that giving people a temporary infusion of cash is paternalistic. But I would argue that it's not nearly as paternalistic as telling somebody what they need and then giving them what you think they need. If you're going to help somebody, there always can be accusations of paternalism. But with cash, what you're doing is you're, you're trusting them to use the money wisely. We tend to trust our family members, for example, with cash gifts, like you mentioned, you know, in, in our family and most families, family members will give each other cash for, um, for as Christmas presents. Why? Well, we, we trust how the person's going to use it. But in the past, at least, we've had much less trust for how poor people will use cash. So we, we give them stuff instead, right? And in, in a way, that, that does much more to undermine their human dignity because you're saying, I don't trust you with cash. I trust you with, with giving you a farm animal or with people building a well in your, in your village. Whether or not you really, really need that or if that's the first thing on your Christmas list, this is what I'm going to give you because I think this is what you need. So a lot of people would argue that there's more paternalism in that approach. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. It sounds like we have some great research that focuses on the effects that cash has had in East Africa. I'm wondering where else we've seen studies of that particular type of cash giving play out? Well, there, there are two kinds of cash transfers. There, there are conditional cash transfers, which are actually more common. An example of that is started out as what was called uh, Progresa in Mexico and became Oportunidades. It's a program where the government gives a cash transfer to moms, um, but it's conditioned upon keeping their kids in school and giving them regular health checkups. Very, very simple things that, that, you know, that you might say like, this is paternalism, right? Because we're, we're conditioning your cash transfer. It's almost like an allowance if you choose to do these, these good things, right? And so the impacts on, of, of that particular program have been, it's been one of the most well-studied cash transfer program or any of any kind of development intervention really at all. And so they've studied the, the impacts on all kinds of different things on schooling and health and and everything. In programs like that, A, again, they don't find that um, that expenditures go go up on alcohol and cigarettes and other kinds of temptation goods. And B, that it does incentivize families to keep their kids in school a little bit longer. About two thirds of a year longer is is what they what they find on average. So um, so it's not a huge effect, but it's a but it's a big and significant effect and significant enough that the World Bank helped replicate uh, that kind of conditional cash transfer program um, working with local governments in um, with national governments in about 30 other countries. So there's so there's just really strong evidence that um, that the conditional cash transfer programs 
don't suffer from the kind of negative effects that we would think of like U.S. welfare, for example, and do have these positive impacts on incentivizing schooling and other things. And there's a real debate about whether the conditional or unca- unconditional cash transfer programs are better because we do see the conditional ones incentivizing some good stuff. Um, but we also see really big benefits from the unconditional cash transfer programs as well. Do you find in, in a program's efficacy that there's any way that it relates to how individualistic the society is or how communal it is? Yeah, there there was um, how, how communal uh, a society is really influences how people think about work, how they use their income and um you know, and a lot of a lot of the other economic decisions that they make. Um, in in the, in the article, I, I cite this study by um, by a colleague of mine, Pamela Jacquiella, who um, for her dissertation at Berkeley did this really interesting experiment on Kenyans and then also on people in the U.S., specifically UC Berkeley students, where she had them uh, do a task. Um, which was which was very simple. It was like sorting red beans from black beans, and then and then paid them a certain amount of money for that task. And then in other cases, she just gave them the money without having them work. And after they received the cash transfer, they had a choice about how much of of that cash that they received, either for doing nothing or for sorting the beans, they would give to an anonymous second person. So what they found is that in Kenya, regardless of whether the person received the money for doing work or for not doing anything, they tend to give a lot of what they received to this anonymous third person who was like another subject in the experiment. Whereas in in the US, people were much more stingy. And especially if they had worked for the money, they they almost gave nothing to this to this person. The feeling was like, I've worked for the money, I deserve it, so I'm gonna keep it. And that's how we think about our money, especially when we work for it. Whereas in Kenya, it doesn't really seem to matter whether somebody got the money because they they worked for it or not. They were much, much more generous with giving part of what they had received away. So some people think, well, okay, that's great, but then if you know you're gonna be giving away a lot of what you earn, it disincentivizes you to work. And and that may be true to some degree. But it also shows differences in values that um, that we have in the West compared to um, people in in less developed countries. In this piece, you write about the fact that there's a biblical tension between generosity and accountability, part of the more universal tension between mercy and justice. How can Christians and our churches best live in this tension and honor both of these values? This tension, I think, is something that I've that I've thought about ever since I started studying economics. There are these two kind of overarching biblical values that play out in many different contexts, which is which stem from the fact, I would say, that we have a God who's just and we have a God who's merciful, right? And those things, even within Scripture itself, there's a tension that exists between those two things, and 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 we see uh, um, we see that tension being resolved in the sacrifice of Jesus, right? Where where there's justice, sin has to be atoned for, and then um, where there's mercy, Jesus atones for the sin. In, in practice, they they seem very opposed to one another. For example, you're you, you have a, a child and the child misbehaves. Well, do you hold the child accountable for that behavior or do, do you give the child a break, right? Are you merciful? And the church needs to understand that, that these are two primal uh, kingdom values and that they're always in tension with, with one another. And it's important not to always, always appeal to one rhetorically, always appeal to mercy. Well, if people are poor, let's just, let's just give them 
hordes of cash or housing or whatever doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter if they work. We're not going to hold anybody accountable for anything, right? That would be one extreme. But then, but then on the other extreme, um, which I think is the extreme that in our culture we fall into more, which is if somebody's poor, it's their own fault, and we need to, need to hold them accountable for that. And so, as a government or as a people, we won't really do very much to help out to help the poor people out in our context, the people who are poor, because they need to be held accountable for that. And if we if we show them mercy, then we're incentivizing indolence or bad choices or something like that, right? So. Both of these things are true, and in a good society, we figure out a balance between those two things that every parent (laughs) faces, you know, in just even doing something like raising their own children. But in our development work, we need to we need to be sort of at the center of this tension, right? Kind of realizing that we need to be merciful, and we also need to be just. We need to hold people accountable, and and give them incentives to work and provide for their for their own needs, the needs of their family as well. One way that I've tried to talk about this in other contexts is to say that actually accountability done well is actually an act of mercy. You know, just taking myself as an example, I'm a weak human being, and so I'm glad I live in, I go to work at a Christian workplace that has high, high standards for me, both in terms of my professionalism and my Christian life. And that, in a sense, is a, is a gift to me. Otherwise, I would be, I think I'd be less of a professional person and less of a Christian if, it, if I didn't have uh, brothers and sisters around me, essentially indirectly reminding me of my the high call of following Christ. So there is a way account in which accountability can be judgmental and create self-righteousness and all those negative traits, but there's also a way in which it really is an act of mercy when it's done well. So how does this work? Okay, uh, again, I'm thinking very practically and very personally. That's the way I tend to think about these things. I'm thinking of two examples. And when I lived in Mexico uh, City for four and a half years, I was told I wasn't able to prove this firsthand that the uh, at the time, the children who were begging uh, on the streets of Mexico were, or the, uh, it was generally children and women, were part of gangs that were, they were being sent out by somebody to get, you know, to get handouts, and then they would have to go report back to this person and give some or all of their, their gifts to this person. Or I see someone in, uh, so we were discouraged from giving money by uh, uh, both Mexicans and Americans there. And then in the U.S., uh, it's just not unusual to have someone, especially in downtown Chicago, sitting there on the curb with a hat, and you're encouraged, they might be playing a guitar or a drum, or might be doing nothing but just sitting there with a listless stare on their face. And we are uh, mostly discouraged from giving to them, uh, especially when the person looks like they're already stoned, and most it appears the most likely thing they're going to do with the money is to go get some more wine. So help help me know how to negotiate those things <laughs> Gosh, if I were able to resolve that tension for for Christians, I, I really would be making a significant contribution. <laughs> there you, I'm um, just trying to get you to get the Nobel Peace Prize, okay? <laughs> Giving you an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. What, what you're what you're talking about, Mark, I think is is just the epitome of of what I was of the tension I was describing before. Is this this tension between mercy and sort of justice, accountability? you know, righteousness, however you want to phrase that other side of the coin. This is actually an academic paper that I'm working on right now that, that, that kind of delves into this issue is how do people use cash and how does how much we give people affect what they do with the money? 
So I'm going to speak as an economist here for a little bit, and then I'll, then I'll maybe speak as sort of a practical Christian in a second. What the evidence shows in terms of giving people small amounts of money on the street is that some fairly large fraction of that goes for temptation goods. It might be thir- – the, the data is actually really mixed, but it might – let's just say it's 30 to 40 percent because that's what it seems to be, You know, maybe, t- maybe as low as 20 in some – um, in some kind of more anecdotal studies, but but let's just say at least a quarter of it on average is probably going to go to alcohol, narcotics, prostitution, things like that. So if if you give people small amounts of money, there's a good there there's good reason to believe that people will use it partly to medicate their sense of hopelessness and then use the rest of it just for present consumption, not investing in anything that's transformational that could improve their lot in life or reduce their dependence on um, asking for handouts down the road. If you give people more money, um, more than a few bucks, maybe maybe let's say a hundred bucks, or maybe even like three or four or 500 bucks, what should tend to happen is that they'll use some of that to consume in the present, and they'll save some of it to consume later in the future. But it's still not going to be transformational in the sense of reducing their dependence on, um, on begging and handouts. However, if you were to give a homeless person a lot of money, like maybe tens of thousands of dollars, which seems like a lot, but in San Francisco, they spend tens of thousands of dollars on each homeless person every year providing services for that person. But let's just say you were to remove all of those services and dump $25,000 on, um, say, a, a 25-year-old homeless man who um, doesn't have a home, unattached to family, how would that person's behavior change with a, with, with a huge cash transfer? There's actually pretty good reason to believe that that, that kind of ca- cash transfer could be transformational for a lot of people. In other words, what I mean by transformational is that, is that the probability of them in a future period of them begging or asking for handouts would go down and that they would use a fair amount of it, if not almost all of it, to invest in housing for themselves and also some way of equipping themselves to earn income rather than begging in the future, which could be investing in their own schooling, their own training and things like that. So we need to expect if we give small amounts of money to people on the street, that a lot of it's going to be used for self-medication. That's just the way it is on average, right? If we as a society decide that we're going to really invest in these people, for many of those people, it, it will be transformational in the sense that it, it, they will not in the future, they will probably be begging less and earning more income on their own. Okay. How does that coincide with, and maybe I'm misinformed here, with the studies that show that lottery winners at, uh, on average, just their lives end up being no better. In fact, they end up being worse often and they end up being more <laughs> unhappy after gaining 100000 200000 $300,000. Yeah. How does that f- fit in with this? At that level, at that, at that level of transfer, this is, this is a really interesting question. There may be a transfer that's so large that other people, for example, begin to it begins to uh, foster claims on that money by friends and relatives and other people, which create new tensions in that person's life and difficult decisions on how to spend the money that may be that may conflict with a spouse. It, it could create sort of a, a destabilization of a, a destabilizing effect on a middle class person, for example. Um, context matters, and so if we're if we're talking about you know the 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 picture I painted before of say a young guy in his twenties who um, has kind of dropped out of society 
has no means of earning income, um, and then receives, you know, not not five million dollars, but fifty thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars. That may create a different set of outcomes than the lottery winner. But I agree. I think the evidence does show that that they're more likely to lottery winners are more likely to be divorced and a bunch of other horrible things. They talk about just people's income. Uh, the, the studies I've read, which may be out of date now, said if uh, people are generally unhappy being poor, and when they make about up to seventy, seventy-five thousand dollars, then they feel like they're finally yeah. satisfied. But it, any more money than that doesn't make them happier. That's right, and context matters too. In the Bay Area, you make seventy-five thousand dollars, you're under the poverty line, um, which is true. It's eighty thousand dollars. That's amazing! Wow. Which I also just thought that was interesting too, right? Because when Americans are using Give Directly services, their dollars are really much more powerful, right, in in a different economy than when they're giving that same amount. Absolutely. So with Give Directly, uh, families in Kenya are getting three tranches of cash that are about three or four hundred dollars each. That essentially that thousand dollars doubles their income on average. Um, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it makes a huge, that $1,000 makes a huge difference for them, which the evidence shows is transformational. Whereas $1,000 for somebody in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, that, that, that would pay one week of rent, um, <laughs> you know, lousy apartment. So, yeah, we're, we're talking about sort of very different contexts. And I guess one of the, one of the messages I would want to get across is people want simple answers about giving and there aren't simple answers. So if, if people are looking for super simple answers about the effect of all giving everywhere, they, they don't exist because it's very contextualized. However, what we know is that through something like Give Directly, which transfers cash to a particular population in East Africa, we know the evidence is really good of high impact. So all of these all of these responses really have to be qualified by their by their context. I know that you wrote some good things about it, so we can link to them in our podcast description, especially when people want to think about things more practically. Just kind of shifting gears for a second, giving has been in the news quite a bit lately and also in our news coverage here at Christianity Today because of changes to the standard deduction, which was part of tax reform that was passed earlier this week. So, Bruce, I'm just wondering, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what was changed with regards to the standard deduction and what that means. Yeah, yeah. So, so itemized deductions are, um, some people are familiar with them and some people aren't. It's when, if you, if say you, um, you've made contributions to your church, your tithe for your church, or maybe you, you sponsor a child through Compassion International, or, and then and then you give to a charity in your hometown. All these are tax deductible. And so when you fill out your taxes, you have to itemize those deductions. So, so currently, you're able to write off all of your deductions and subtract that from your taxable income. The change that's being proposed and that is likely to pass is that the, um, the standard deduction for married couples is going to increase to $24,000. What that means is that is that if you give $23,999 away to charity, you don't receive any tax benefit from doing so because you're already getting the standard deduction um, of $24,000 so that if you give less than $24,000, it doesn't even, you needn't even, if this goes through, you needn't even, even bother to itemize your deductions because they won't count. So this this bill, as a as a Christian, as an economist, but even more as a Christian, I certainly cannot support this this bill and have pretty strong feelings about it. It really is is a um, 
is a bill that will hurt churches. Um, it hurts it, in many ways. It will really hurt ministries, nonprofits. I mean, if you think about it, a good society should incentivize people to do good things. And so, when so the reason we've had these itemized deductions is to give people an incentive to do their tithing to their churches, to contribute to nonprofits that are doing good work. What this bill does is it takes away that incentive to give money away to both faith-based and non-faith-based charities. And so for a typical middle-class family doesn't, isn't able, unfortunately, I'm sure they would want to, but isn't able to give away $24,000 to, um, to their church or to, to other, other nonprofits. And so what it does is it takes away their incentive to do that. So for a whole bunch, for rich people, yeah, there's still an incentive to, um, to give to charities, but for this whole huge array of middle-class people in the United States, the government will no longer be giving them an incentive to be givers. And this is, this is really destructive for our churches, for faith-based nonprofits, and any Christian should call their representative or their senator and say, please do not vote for this bill. I'm surprised I haven't heard more of an outcry from all the nonprofits in the country about this, or has it been there and I just haven't seen it? I think it's there. I think I think the nonprofits um, and churches as, as well are, are really worried about this because effectively what it does, like if somebody's in, say, like a 30% tax bracket, it makes the ties to their church 30% more expensive. So you can almost think of it, for at least for the middle class, as a tax on churches, right? It makes... It's a tax on church members um, in, a, in a way that makes it that much more expensive to keep up with their tithes. When I was doing research about the effects that changes to the standard deduction would have, the New York Times looked at this question called what makes people give back in 2008. And I found it very interesting that multiple times it was cited in here that one of the things that had effectively incentivized people to give was the standard deduction, which was something that I wasn't necessarily prepared for as like something that kept coming up. Because you and I were talking earlier that uh, the type of Christian churches Morgan and I have been a part of, I don't know if it's going to make any difference in what Christians in those churches give, because um, the notion is you just you just give because that's what you're supposed to do. But I don't know how that works nationally. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, especially as an economist, like we just know on average that that can't be true, like because people, unless people don't value their money, they're always going to be in difficult financial situations where they have to make very, very tough choices. And so if it costs them more to tithe than, than to do something, make some other decision that they need to make, like to save for their children's college or, or whatever, you know, we're all making these difficult trade-offs. There are very few examples that we can find where people don't respond to those kind of incentives. So if it costs, if essentially it costs you 30% more to make your tithe, you know, marginally, that's probably going to move some people at least away from, away from tithing. Again, middle-class people, not, not wealthy people. Something to explore more in-depth in a future show. Thank you very much for this really interesting discussion, Bruce. I definitely realized you were right when you're talking about how context matters and it could make having a conversation about giving so complicated because all the actors yeah. in there. So anyone with feedback can leave it through Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. All right, now is the time of the show where we share something that is bringing us joy at the moment. Bruce? You have something? The last two nights, I've gone to Christmas concerts with my two daughters who go to a little uh, a little parochial school a few blocks from our house in Berkeley. And to see those kids 
up there just singing Christmas praise songs and um, and just these kindergartners last night just they just gave me so much joy seeing them um, praise Jesus together up on stage with a packed auditorium full of parents that just really brought Christmas close to my heart last night. That sounds great. I love Christmas music and kids singing Christmas music is awesome. Are you online or on Twitter? Yes. Yeah. Um, people can, if they're interested, they can follow my blog, which is uh, acrosstwoworlds.net. Um, and I'm on Twitter at uh, Bruce Wydick, um, W-Y-D-I-C-K. You may have heard that I like fly fishing. How is this coming up? How is this relevant in winter? It's relevant in winter because last fishing. night I was looking over my calendar for the first half of 2018, picking the dates and the places I want to go fish. Let me guess. God said it's going to rain <laughs> on all of those dates exactly. like it happened to you this year. So that brought me joy to just think about all, all that I'm going to be able to do next year. Lord willing, assuming the Lord doesn't come, which would even be better. <laughs> Where can people find you? You have a newsletter, right? By subscribing to The Galley Report, christianitytoday.com slash Report. G-A-L-L-I is the way you spell it, where I link to four or five articles a week and comment on them. And if you think you'd find that helpful, subscribe. My precious moment is the fact that I am reading Cesar Chavez's autobiography right now. And this is a part of California history that I did not grow up learning in schools. I'm not exactly sure why, maybe because it was too recent. Who knows? But I'm learning a lot, essentially... For people who do not know who Cesar Chavez is, maybe that's a Californian thing. He was someone that organized a lot of farm workers, many of whom were Mexican-American or Mexican during the 20th century. And he was a person of faith, which he talks about in his autobiography, and someone that just ended up being really inspiring through the work that he was able to do in taking on a lot of the growers. One thing that I like hearing about is how he specifically organized people and motivated people who were often very downtrodden in kind of how they saw the world because of these incredibly excruciating conditions that you deal with when you're a migrant worker and running around the state trying to always catch the next harvest for everything. He almost also makes this really interesting point that many poor people in the United States, the way that they see achieving wealth as possible is that they'll just try to get the next generation to go to college. But he says, one thing that we don't do enough of is trying to get people who are poor to figure out how they can actually access wealth themselves and to tap into those things. So anyway, it's a really interesting book and very easy to read, and I'm enjoying reading it. I have memories of him from the 60s and 70s in California, in the San Joaquin Valley especially, and being I remember being asked to boycott various and sundry agricultural goods to support his efforts. So he was a figure in California in those days, yep. Very, very interesting person. Anyway, people can follow me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you for everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out there. We do ask that if you have kind things that you want to say about this podcast or honest things, I don't know, maybe both, you can leave your reviews at Apple Podcasts. Where it's very helpful to have that there. We are taking the week off next week and we will play you one of our favorite episodes from the year in case you missed it. This podcast has been produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. We wish you all a Merry Christmas and we'll see you in the next year. Bye.